Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. Let me start by talking about the case that obviously is making all of the papers today. Such a horrific case that was before the uh, courts came to an end yesterday with a serving Garda uh, being jailed for what could only be described as the horrific mental and physical torture of his ex-partner. But I think what adds to this case was the fact that his former partner was facing cancer at the time of this absolutely horrific abuse. And obviously now that the case is over and this guy has been found guilty and he received his sentence yesterday, he's now able to be officially identified. And he's been identified as a 42-year-old Garda by the name of Paul Moody. He was handed a sentence yesterday of three years and three months. And I know some people felt, you know, when they saw and heard the detail of the case, some people felt that that sentence was was a little bit on the lenient side. But I suppose the judge's hands are tied in here in what can actually be handed down in a case like this. Now, his former partner is a 43 year old. She's described as a terminally ill woman. And this Paul Moody guy tormented her. Uh, It was a relationship of coercive control. At one stage he told her that the only reason that he came to visit her in in hospital where she was being treated for cancer at the time was he wanted to watch her bleed to death. Can you imagine anyone saying that to somebody who was in hospital battling uh, cancer? It just the mind boggles how one human being can inflict that kind of mental and psychological torture on another human being. And in a harrowing testimony at the sentence hearing on Monday, the woman detailed how he broke her down mentally with a range of threats. He was before Dublin Circuit Criminal Court. They heard he harassed her, he threatened her, he assaulted her, he stole from her and he controlled the woman and it went on for more than four years. They had first met online. That's how the relationship began in 2017. The court heard he sent the woman more than 30,000 messages over those years and in one 14 hour period back in July of 2018 so they weren't even together a year at this stage he sent 652 messages which would have amounted to one text message every 90 seconds 
Uh, God, he had nothing else to do with his time, um, did he? But it was what was in the messages. They were described in court as threatening. They were described as vile and abusive. In one, he described her as being riddled with cancer. In another, while she was away on holidays without him, he said he hoped while she was away on holidays that she would get raped and bleed. What a horrific thing to put in a text message uh, to uh, to anyone. He he, you know, he did plead guilty in the charge of coercive control in relation uh, to the woman. And of course, the offence of coercive control, that only came into effect in January. It only became recognised as an offence in January of 2019. So sentencing yesterday, the judge, Martin Nolan, noted that the maximum sentence that's available to the courts for this offence is five years. So he couldn't give any more than five uh, years. He said Paul Moody's behaviour was at the highest end of this offence, but the court had to take his guilty plea into consideration. And because of that, he got a reduction in the five-year sentence and he was sentenced instead to three years and three months. And I did hear it mentioned yesterday that the judge recognised that a, a, a serving Gardaí going into jail was going to get a tougher time than any other prisoner. And I imagine if prisoners get to see and hear what this man did and what he's been convicted of, the judge said Moody carried out a catalogue of vile and humiliating criminal uh, misbehaviour. He said he abused his position as a guarder to obtain information that he then used to harass and humiliate the victim and also to endanger her life by driving recklessly uh, at her. But what's really interesting, because, you know, listening to this woman saying how he, uh, what he had done over a period of time, that he'd literally taken over control of her. And I was wondering, you know, because everyone was saying how brave she was to go to go forward and make the complaint. It seems she didn't actually go to the Gardaí initially to make a complaint against this man because he had so much control over what had happened was this Paul Moody had made a complaint. He was serving guard at the time. He had made a complaint about one of his victim's relatives. And in order to proceed with that case, he had to hand over his phone to allow for it to be examined in the context of that particular allegation. And seemingly what happened was officers started going through his phone and they became concerned that there was an abusive relationship between him and the victim. So then they arranged to meet her and then she later made a statement. And when she made her statement of complaint, that statement of complaint ran, the initial statement of complaint ran to 280 pages. But seemingly the amount of evidence that went into court yesterday, there was 33,000 pages of information. The abuse had gone on for so long and it was so vile and so uh, intense. Now, the woman did take to the stand yesterday to read her victim impact statement in which she outlined after an initial normal relationship with what she described as a charming and a funny man. He then very slowly and surely broke her down. She said, I wasn't just fighting cancer. I was up against a monster who would take away any chance I ever had of surviving. She said, she said, I believed he was going to kill me. I can take the weight. I said, I can feel the weight of him on my body, choking me, ripping out my hair from the roots. I was afraid to show vulnerability as that as when he attacked me the most. The woman said she felt Moody knew what was going on in her mind because he had access to her phone. She said it felt like my mind was broken 
glass. I didn't know what was right or what was wrong anymore because he was breaking my mind. She said she can no longer now walk past a member from Garda Corner. She can't walk past a Garda station without feeling physically sick and described how the process to get justice has taken its toll. That poor, poor woman. And I did see Sarah Benson, uh, Chief Executive of Women's Aid, say that the case is extremely important to encourage other victims to come forward. She said we have had women been, are they at Women's Aid have supported women in the past who have been subjected to abuse by a current or former partner who may be a guard and said that can have a chilling effect. And, you know, Sarah Benson spoke about the death. I remember Sarah Everett in England who was abducted, raped and murdered by a serving police officer. That particular case led the Ungard, because that happened in England, but it led Ungarda Siakona to examine its own policies and procedures regarding domestic and gender-based violence within their own force. But Sarah Benson of Women Aid said a whole of community response across all workplaces is necessary to create a zero tolerance culture for domestic violence sexual harassment and all forms of gender based violence because of course coercive control can happen to men as well it doesn't just happen to women and I also saw Noreen Blackwell who's uh, we've spoken many times on the programme she's uh, the chief executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis uh, Centre she picked up in particular um, how a person's respectability within the community is not a guarantee for those closest to them that they will not be subjected to domestic or sexual abuse. She said this so-called respectability in so many crimes in the past. She said it's hidden crimes in the church. It's hidden crimes in education, in the upholders of the law in this particular case. And she said it's a reminder to us that so-called respectable people can be entirely unrespectable in their ways of operating in private and can sometimes feel that they can get away with it because they have this respectability label and that has come out before in other crimes that people in the community that the person was you know so upstanding in the community and of course that then feeds into the victim who's going to believe me because everyone thinks you know he's he or she is a pillar of the community nobody's going to believe me and that's why this type of case and this type of case getting publicity and I know the Gardaí were a pains after this case uh, to point out to other victims to please come forward that you will be believed Uh, by the way when this case uh, first started getting investigated he was suspended from uh, the force and he has now said he's going to resign from the force but I did hear earlier today that he will still keep his guard the pension and I know that causes offence to some people so let's let all of us uh, please think of that poor woman at the centre of this case because she's still battling stage four uh, cancer. I'm just hoping that the sentence yesterday will give her some kind of closure and some kind of peace and she can focus just on her now and on her cancer treatment and we wish her absolutely nothing but uh, good health going forward. Some reaction that has come in overnight to some of the issues we were addressing yesterday on the programme. Yesterday I spoke with Councillor John O'Sullivan from Court McSherry and he was talking about the dredging, the long overdue dredging uh, works in uh, Court McSherry uh, Harbour that is going to go ahead. It's going to start in uh, August. But the downside is that what they 
the waste that they take away and the silt that they take away from the bay has to be transported to Port Leash because it's believed that it's contaminated and there's going to be up to 150 truckloads will have to go. You know, people are looking at it from the environmental point of view. Well, it's great for Court Mac what is happening. But having all of those trucks on the road, you know, was, is, there, is, there, is there no other way around as well? I've had um, an email in from Councillor Paul Hayes on the subject. He said, I was listening to your discussion yesterday regarding the removal of the material from the upcoming dredging works in Court McSherry. I actually raised this issue, said Paul, at our council meeting last week. And while absolutely welcoming that the long-awaited dredging work is finally due to begin in August, I did query the rationale behind the decision to transport all of that material to Port Leash afterwards. For decades, local farmers were allowed to take this sand and silt from the bay to spread it on their land and it was done without an issue. On other occasions, the dredged material would be dumped out at sea. However, the EPA licence for Court McSherry now stipulates that all of the removed material must be transported and disposed of at this designated depot in Port Leash. That's almost a 500 kilometre round trip from Court Mac. And we're told there's going to be over 150 truckloads. While I in no way want to contaminate the land or sea in our beautiful part of the world, surely a balance must be found environmentally for projects like this. When I initially raised this issue some years ago, the original cost estimated for the dredging was in the region of €30,000. Now, due mostly to the extra transportation and disposal costs, wait for this, the project is costing in excess of €600,000. Is that really the best use of public money, asks Paul Hayes. As an elected representative, I believe it's my duty to query and challenge decisions like this on behalf of the constituents. I didn't realise that the costs, but it's been they have been dragging their heels on this dredging work. Isn't it incredible to think that if they, if they had done it at the time when it was first proposed, €30,000 done, dust at the dredging works would have been over. But the delays now gone to over half a million, €600,000. That really is incredible. And then Anne-Marie contacting the programme. This is with regard to the man from Roscommon with the Jack Russell that uh, is uh, pending now what the courts are going to do whether this little Jack Russell is going to have to be put down or not because he nipped a woman who was walking past the gate Hi Patricia I'm on two sides of the fence when it comes to this dog story now firstly we lost our beautiful dog a few years ago and the grief felt by my family was real and it was heartfelt on the other hand I'm also really afraid of dogs so I'm very much an advocate of responsible pet ownership allowing dogs to be in public spaces while not under effective control is very wrong and it actually infringes the rights of others to peaceful enjoyment of these public areas. Telling people that a dog is only being friendly when he or she is bounding towards a stranger barking loudly in my opinion, is not effective control. Having a dog in your life is a privilege and owners should ensure that they care for their dog by engaging in suitable training and by obeying the relevant laws. Thanking you. And that's from uh, Anne-Marie. And I, uh, yeah, and I'm, I have to say, I'm not afraid of dogs, but whenever I'm out and certainly uh, this summer, the couple of times we were at uh, down at Beaches, 
uh, Marsha being visually impaired, obviously a dog, she's, she's really, really afraid of dogs. Now, it goes back to where she was nipped, can I say, by a Jack Russell many, many years ago after she first came to live with us. She was nipped on the back of her leg. We were out for a walk and this dog uh, shot out and just nipped her on, the back, on the, the back of her leg. Now, I didn't do anything about having the dog put down or anything. I, I, I Actually, I just got her out of the situation very quickly because I could see how upset she was. Uh, so I didn't even do anything about the dog. Uh, but anyway... And probably I should have in hindsight. But anyway, besides all of that, but because of that, because the dog was barking, she's terrified now for anywhere and there's a barking dog. And if we go and visit family or friends that have dogs, I always have to be very careful uh, around dogs because it just makes her very nervous. Same even if a cat goes by her. And I suppose if you can think about it, if you're visually impaired and your hearing's affected as well and suddenly something, you know, runs by your leg and, you know, you can feel this with a cat or if a dog is barking and you don't know where it is or it's coming for you is it going to bite you etc I can understand her nervousness so when I'm out in public with her and if we're walking in the summer as I say there was a couple of times we were on the beach and people had their dogs off off the lead and like that I can appreciate and I know what a friendly dog looks like but a friendly dog coming bounding towards us causes me to be nervous on her behalf and countless times I will have the owner saying oh he's very friendly she only wants to say hi and whatever and then I have to explain well my daughter's a bit afraid can you you know can you call your dog back can you put your dog on the lead and in fairness most people when they realise that uh, she's special needs and that she's blind they will get their dog under control so I do know what you're talking about and if you have a fear factor seeing a dog even the most friendliest of dogs can be very very off-putting so people I think need to bear that in mind when they do have a dog off the lead oh, Eight one eight one zero three one zero three. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text. You can WhatsApp to oh eight six two. 103 103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie. As we heard in all of our news bulletins yesterday, over two thirds of primary and three quarters of secondary school parents say they are worried about meeting school costs this year. To discuss this year's back to school survey by from Bernardo's, I'm joined by Stephen Moffat. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Patricia. And, and you're welcome to the programme. As the cost of living crisis deepens, are families, Stephen, who never struggled before, finding back-to-school costs very difficult this year? Absolutely. Uh, it's something that we've seen even within and across our services before we ran the survey that, you know, our staff were saying there's, there's families who, you know, wouldn't have needed... Uh, financial support in the past who are really needing it now uh, and our, our staff had also said look wait until back to school costs hit that's when you'll see the real crisis for, for many families and that's exactly what's come out within our survey some families who you know might have put away money uh, you know in the upcoming months to before they had to pay for back to school and put money away here and there they just haven't been able to do it this year so they're having to go without other essentials they're having to cut back on others just so that they can afford uh, uniforms books pay voluntary contributions uh, this this summer before uh, the children go back to school in September and I, I was reading your report yesterday uh, Stephen I mean it's, it's, it's it, some of it makes for really heartbreaking reading listening to some of the very honest parents who spoke to you you know hearing people saying I'm going without food 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's really we we heard that about from quite a few families saying that they're going without essentials, and it is tough to read, uh, and it puts it all into context though about the real struggles that families are facing. And some of these families, as you pointed out, aren't families who would have struggled a huge amount necessarily in the past. They're just really, really feeling the cost of living hitting them now. And obviously, the big concern for us is the impact that that's having on children. Children living living in those households where parents are really struggling financially are stressed and anxious about meeting these costs and the knock-on impact that's having on children uh you know we our parents obviously do their utmost to try and uh, make sure that things don't uh, filter down to their children but what we know from our experience is that that ultimately does end up of course of course it does of course it does i mean parents will do their very best to shield everything from their children but children aren't stupid. They they can pick up on the tension and, and, and the worry. And I mean, I know the government has increased the back to school clothing and footwear allowance by €100 Euro for both primary and uh, secondary. It'll help a little bit. But reading your survey, not enough. No, it's, you know, when we really welcomed it and we think it was a step in the right direction, it's, it's acknowledging uh, that the government appreciates that families, some families are struggling, need a bit extra support. But if you, for example, have a child going into first year of school, uh, you know, you, you're back to, if you qualify for the back to school allowance, uh, you will get over three, just over 350 euro. But that your child's costs will be a minimum of 800 euro. Yeah. So there's still a huge gap there. So there's definitely uh, steps that the government could take to go further uh, and real positive steps we think the government could take. And I know whenever I mention the back to school clothing and footwear allowance on this programme, I will inevitably get a slew of calls and texts in from families saying, you know, while great for the families that get it, many of us don't receive that allowance. No, absolutely. And we did, you know, we did come out, you know, around cost of living saying that initially measures need to be targeted at those uh, who are struggling most financially. So for them to target this, at, you know, those already receiving back to school allowance, we think it's positive. But, you know, we heard for, from a huge number of parents in the survey who said, look, they're working, but they're struggling financially. Their incomes are still quite low, but they just don't qualify for the back to school allowance. They mightn't be in any... Uh, receipt of any welfare support from the state so that means they're not eligible for it um, and, they, and those families feel like they're nearly being penalised you know that they have very low incomes and they're just not quite meeting thresholds and, and as a result they're getting no support whatsoever and some of those families would have three or four children you know so that you know adds up to it could be a couple of thousand euros mm-hmm. uh, this summer Could the government go further with the back to school allowance then and broaden the thresholds for it? So I think there's definitely an argument to be had around that about, you know, exactly how the thresholds work, uh, making sure that the families who are struggling most financially do uh, do get additional support. But we think there's other ways that the government could go about supporting families around back to school costs that would help all families. For example, making sure there's affordable uniforms options out there and across all schools wouldn't cost the government any money whatsoever, as well as, you know, what parents really want uh, and what came across in our survey is they really want free school books. Uh, and the government could come up with the money, we believe, to, uh, to fund a scheme in which all, all children across the country are, are receive free school books come every September. The, just the, the uniform one that you mentioned there, uh, Stephen, and I know previous ministers for education have tried to sort this one out uh, as well, but this, these crested uniforms are still an issue. Oh, absolutely. And we, we asked primary and secondary school uh, parents, you know, is this still 
something that they face. And, you know, within secondary schools, over three quarters uh, of secondary schools are still are insisting on crested and branded uniforms. There's so many affordable options out there. Schools, you know, principals and boards of management should be doing the right thing. Government should be introducing measures to make sure that they are doing the right thing, that they're putting children first and families who are struggling first, that families shouldn't be going out without other essentials because they've got to meet a crested uniform cost, which could be 60, 70 uh, euro just for a jumper alone when they could be going somewhere else down the road and it's 10 yeah, to 15 euro. Yeah, yeah. And then we have some schools and I'm sure this is reflected around the country. Besides the branded uniform, there's a branded tracksuit that has to be purchased. Yeah, and absolutely, you know, it's it's something that parents said the exact same thing to us about all of a sudden, you know, over the last couple of years or even this year, you know, here's a branded tracksuit that they have to get for PE if they want to uh, wear it within school. We just don't think that's reflecting the reality of the financial difficulties that families find themselves in. So, again, that's why we think the government should take further measures to make sure the principals and boards of management do the right thing, have an affordable option. So parents and children aren't anxious and worried about uniforms, but they're focusing on, you know, the educational aspect of schools and not, oh, can I pay for uh, a new jumper if my daughter or if my son uh, rips it during going to school or grows out of it during the year, given how quickly children grow. Mm -hmm. Some schools are very proactive with the book rental schemes, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And it was a really positive step. Uh, you know, it does reduce costs. It's, it's, it still is a cost, but it does reduce costs uh, f- for families, which we think is really, really welcome. There's still a lot of schools, like in secondary schools, only 50% of schools offer a, a rental system. Um, but also we think, look, all children should be placed at an equal footing when they go back to school in September. So they should all have that ability to feel ownership over books. And we don't think it's an extortionate fee uh, for the government to come up with to provide free school books. To do that, we you know we estimate about 20 million for primary school and might be about double that for secondary school. But we think the government can find that given it's such, it would be such a small fraction of the Department of Education's budget. You know, it is a big position for, for children to think, right, we're all, we all own our books within this classroom. We're all on the same footing. And for families to feel that as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, as well, as good as the book rental system is, we think the government could go further. Did many of the parents mention the, uh, and I say this in inverted commas, voluntary contribution from the schools? Yeah, absolutely. We know a lot of schools uh, do as much as they can to try and avoid asking for voluntary contribution. But over uh, two thirds of primary and secondary schools, uh, parents were asked for it. The vast majority of those did not feel like it's a voluntary fee. They feel it's almost like a compulsory fee. Uh, you know, some parents are saying, look, they feel shame if they weren't to pay for it, particularly in smaller communities. They are uh, concerned about, um, you know, what potential impact it could have uh, on their relationships with the school if they don't pay it. And from our own uh, services, we know, you know, if parents don't pay it, the big concern is, you know, so even if they're not having to pay the fee, they then end up avoiding their schools. They don't. They might try and avoid a parent-teacher meeting, for example, because of the shame that they didn't pay the contribution. And no parent should, should feel that yeah. uh, when they, it should be a free education. Yeah, one, one, 100%. And I know we're always saying to parents who contact us about the voluntary contribution, you know, contact the schools, because a lot of principals are really good and, and understanding about it. But there's that level of shame. People don't want their son or daughter to stand out or to be different in any way. 
No, exactly. And and we know that, you know, for many principals, it's it's one of the jobs that they hate most over the course of the school year is having to go out and ask uh, parents, parents that they might know who are really struggling yeah. for voluntary contributions. But the reality is they are not, most schools are not funded to meet all their essential costs. So they're having to go to uh, parents um, who might be struggling. So the solution there is the Department of Education and the government needs to fund schools appropriately. And the first step of doing that is understanding how much voluntary contributions are raised every year and where does that money actually go? It certainly isn't going on luxuries as it as it once started out to be. There'd be something special that the school would need. I mean, I, we've certainly heard from principals who use some of that money just to keep the lights on in the school and to pay for the heating bill. Yeah, and exactly. And, you know, particularly at the moment when, you know, schools will be feeling the cost of living increases. Yeah. Uh, you know, th- we don't want that to have an impact on the children going to those schools. Um, so we completely understand where some principals come from. But we just really don't believe that, you know, parents who are struggling financially should feel a compulsion to pay an additional fee of, you know, it could be 150, 160 euro for secondary school. And if you have two or three children there, that's suddenly a huge hit come comes July or August. Yeah, it's any of the families that have got two, three and, and more children and they just face the biggest bills. So, so Stephen, what we now need is the government to move to a more genuinely free education system. Other countries can do it and do it successfully. Yeah, and we believe that, you know, this country could definitely do it. We think there's steps uh, that the government could take immediate steps and that they could plan out, you know, uh, something over the next four or five years to, to really uh, back up that that claim that we have a free education system. So free school books could definitely be rolled out. They could start with primary schools. Uh, we know that wouldn't uh, that would only cost us a, a relatively small amount. Affordable uniform options, again, wouldn't cost the state any money. It would just be mean doing the right thing. Um, the back-to-school allowance, maintaining what that increase was this year, really, really welcome. Uh, and we have seen you know, positive steps. We've seen things uh, like the hot school meals and the free, uh, free school meal program, that be rolled out further over the last number of years. Real progress around that. So we think you take some of that progress and that forward momentum there and apply it to free school books. There just needs to be a will behind it. And I think parents are just getting sick and tired of this issue constantly coming up year after year. And that's what they're telling us in the survey. Government needs to take step forwards with this because there is, there is a relatively straightforward solution. OK, and you have it there in black and white in your report for sure. Stephen Nissen, thank you for that and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Thanks so much for Good having me. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. Stephen Moffat there, who joins us from Bernardus. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The Queen of the Detroit United Irish Societies began as a competition in the late 50s and it's a competition... Uh, for young women of Irish descent with the top prize including a trip to visit Ireland. To discuss this year's Queen and the upcoming visit of this year's Queen, I'm joined by Sheila Cassidy and Sheila is the chairwoman of the Queen of Detroit programme. Uh, Good morning to you, Sheila. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm very well and you're very welcome to the programme. I suppose to try to put this in context and get a bit of background, this uh, programme was formerly known as the Maid of Erin. Why did you decide to change the name and give us a bit of the background to it? Absolutely. Well, we determined that um, it was time to bring our programme up to the new level or the new time frame. 
um, if someone is not deeply into the Irish community or heritage, but um, they don't recognize the name Maid of Erin. So we had a lot of questions along the way. What does this mean? What does this mean, Maid of Erin? So our committee came together and said, well, let's just plain and simple tell them who she is and what she recognizes. So she is the queen of our United Irish Societies, which is our 32-plus member group Irish community in the metropolitan area of Michigan. So um, having said that, as you mentioned, our queen is presented a trip to Ireland, and her court members are um, presented a monetary gift for their representation, and they represent the Irish community for a full year. Um, since 2015, we've been bringing the queen over to Ireland to see firsthand where her ancestries hail from. And I think unless you experience it yourself, every picture can tell a story, but to walk the path of your ancestries really brings it forward. Um, and we were very, very honored in 2015 when we started. Our, our first queen was 2015. We brought her over. And um, at the time, John Paul O'Shea was the president. Or, excuse me, was the mayor. We call him the, president the, the, here, the mayor, the the mayor, mayor of Cork County, well known to us here on the program. Yeah. So, so you started Absolutely. To, you started to build, heart and a half. You started to build a connection then uh, with Cork County Council. He sure did. He sure did. He welcomed us to his office, and from there it was, um, I think a stone became a big mountain. (laughs) John Paul was the first mayor to attend our St. Patrick's Parade in 2016, which made our St. Patrick's Parade International, um, which was a feather in our cap. And since then, we've had Declan Hurley and Seamus McGrath, and recently um, Doyle over to our parade, which is just outstanding representation, building that bridge between Corktown, Detroit, and County Cork, Ireland. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Corktown, Detroit must have some kind mm-hmm. of a Cork connection, does it? Oh, absolutely. Well, let me go way, way back. When many immigrated from Ireland, when they stepped off the central train station in what was just the neighborhood of Detroit, um, many Irish came through that train station. And since then, the over a population of Irish that formed and lived in that that neighborhood, as we would call it in Detroit, became so overpopulated with the Irish, they opened up um, churches and they opened up medical places. And then Irish establishments started to develop from there. So hence then, they actually changed the, the name of the neighborhood to Corktown, Detroit. So a lot, a lot of that, people with Irish descent therefore in the area. Oh, huge, huge. And then most recently, you know, the train station has been closed for a number of years. Well, the Ford family, which we know where they're from, which is your area, they actually bought the train station, and at this point it's under renovation. And in time, it's going to be not only residential areas at the top of the huge building, but it's also going to be uh, businesses. So um, the Ford family has really touched on the country, let alone deep, deep, deep into Corktown. And, you know, they're, they they immigrated from Cork as well. So they did. there's no reason we can't be one. Ballinascarthy in uh, beautiful West uh, uh, Cork, and of course your your own with a name like Sheila Cassidy. What what's your own Irish roots, Sheila? Well, I'm proud to say my father immigrated from Carrickmacross, Monaghan, back in the fifties, and my mother's parents um, immigrated from Kerry. So, um, you know, between going to school and going going to church every Sunday, the Irish heritage was a part of my life. And I became an Irish step dancer and competed in Galway in the uh, world back in back in the day. We won't say what year it was, but it was back in the day. So um, I'm very blessed to have a committee that puts this program together. Um, young women that I've grown up with that are deep into the Irish roots that 
we find it very important that as the generations move out, sometimes the interest or the involvement kind of depletes from our heritage and culture because there's so many other opportunities and avenues that these young children take, whether it's working for scholarships for college. So we said, you know what, we need to make these young Irish um, involved. Get mm-hmm. them involved. If they, have their, their, if they have their energy into the program or into anything, they will continue our tra- traditions and heritage. And that's what we're fearful, that that will start to slow down. Yeah, and let them never forget where they came from and, and how hard people worked in order that they have this wonderful life. Oh, amen, amen. And we've been very blessed to have met so many people from Cork County Council, and I have to give hats off to Nicola Radley. She um, was very influential in making, developing this partnership with our program in Cork County Council, and then she took it a step further with uh, John Paul O'Shea and Mary Foley, and they signed a friendship agreement with the city of Detroit and Cork County, Ireland. So. Um, as Declan Hurley said, there's only water dividing our two countries. That's all. That's all. You, you, you're, <laughs> our like nearest, you're, you're our nearest neighbours on one side and, and we never, ever forget that for, uh, for sure. Now, obviously, the pandemic hit and there was no, there was no travel. Uh, you're bringing two queens with you uh, next are, month. We are. super excited. We have uh, Claudia Ray, who was crowned in 20. And as you said, with the virus, things were put on hold. So, she was able and agreed to stay on to be our queen for two years, and then we wrapped up our program again here in 2022 and Sarah Gum. So the two ladies are going to be traveling. I'll be chaperoning them um, over to Cork. So Claudia's family hails from County Mayo, and then Sarah's family hails from Limerick and Kerry. So they're no strangers to the Irish community as well. They both have done some Irish dancing, and they have wonderful knowledge of their Irish heritage and culture. And I was on the phone to them last night, and they are super excited to travel the streets of Corktown and um, County Cork, Ireland, and just tell their story about their their Irish heritage and learn all they can why they're there. Brilliant. And will you try, if, if you're passing by, will you bring them into the studio? It'll be great to have a chat with the two girls. 100%. Great. I'd love to do great. that. Great. Uh, well, it is about the girls. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it is indeed. And I'm assuming when they come to Ireland, do they try and st- sell Detroit as a possible holiday destination? We do. We do talk it up. We do talk yeah. it up because we, we we want that connection. We want, you know, as I say, the planes go back both ways, right? Yeah. So we want them coming our way as much as we die to get back over to Ireland every year. We can't. We can't get enough of Ireland. I know. I know. Well, listen. We look forward to uh, seeing you, uh, Sheila. When? When do you? When is the trip planned for? Well, I'll tell you what. Cork might start trembling on the seventh of August. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be starting to pull. <laughs> we'll uh, start pulling in at that point, you've and only... then we'll be around for three or four days. All but right. I definitely, we'll get in touch with you. Okay. Well, we will look forward to it, Sheila, and we thank you for taking time out to talk to us today. Same to you. God bless you. Have a good day. Good morning to you. Bye-bye. Sheila Cassidy, their chairwoman of the Queen of Detroit. And as I say, we look forward to the two queens joining us live in studio. My apologies to Councillor Declan Hurley just seeing a WhatsApp in for him. Say, Patricia, you're going to be chatting with Sheila Cassidy. That was the lady we'd on from Detroit uh, shortly. I'd love if you could say a big hello to to Sheila and say the cork red carpet is ready to be rolled out for them. And we're looking forward to giving our friends from Detroit a big Cade Mila Falta after a long time uh, 
apart and uh, best wishes from Councillor Declan Hardy who was in fairness one of the councillors that uh, as Sheila mentioned apologies uh, Declan with so many WhatsApps coming in I only got to see it just as Sheila went off the phone but we look forward to having Sheila and the two queens join us in studio next month 0818103103 our lines remain uh, open we're going to be discussing in the next hour uh, the Irish government giving consideration to opening a second chamber in the houses of the Iraqis in, in Dolair and the idea would be that it would make politics more family friendly and also seeing how the Transport Committee got on when Aer Lingus and others from the aviation sector were before them yesterday. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Now it seems a final deal to have Ireland's carbon emissions by the end of the decade. It looks like that's going to be delayed until at least September because it's looking like the coalition leaders are failing to resolve the ongoing impasse and they were meeting again last night. They're expected to meet again today. Ministers are squabbling over the final detail on the agricultural admissions uh, targets and of course we all know political business is winding down for the summer break so the next opportunity we won't have to wait until September. Environmental groups and the Green Party's own chair last night were very critical of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael's inability to agree to the higher reductions. Now the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael I say that they have fears about its impact on Ireland's agri-food industry. Dennis is in Castle Magna and has contacted the programme on this topic. Good morning to you Dennis. Morning. Dennis you're fearful that if the Greens get their way at the higher level of the admissions they want a cut of 30% which according to Eamon Ryan will include a cut in the national herd. You're fearful on what that's going to do for food production costs. So that's a no-brainer uh, Patricia. I mean uh, even at the moment you're on about food prices at least 20-25% of that hasn't been passed back to the consumer yet. Now they're if they'll cut back thirty percent here, there's only one way food going to go up is rise, and people won't be able to afford it. And I mean, you can, and they are doing the same. And there's murder in 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 Holland and in in France, uh, and the world will have to produce fifty percent more food over the next over the next fifty years to feed the world. We've rise, the world population is rising, so I don't know where they're going to get food. Yeah, and, uh, and our uh, own our own population. I mean, we're one of the smaller countries, but our own population is rising. Yeah, I know, but uh, yeah, well, we, we, do, we export ninety percent of more of what we of our beef. Yeah, of our beef. Yeah, where maybe uh, they'll bring it in from South America. And a couple of years ago, beef got got if your opinion coming from South America. No, I'm not against the people from South America. They're all farmers. We're all trying to trying to scrape our living, but. Uh, beef got scarce and they, they, they banned the export of beef. But, mean, uh, but yet environmentalists will tell you, Dennis, we have to do something. I mean, I, I take it you're not a climate change denier. You accept climate change is going on. Yes, but um, there's 50,000 people leaving uh, Dublin Airport every day and we're supposed to be financially straight and they're not about it. The same engines are going to the Europeans as they did 40 years ago. Yeah. Car industry had, the car industry had to reform them and make engines. There's only three companies making engines for cars in the world today because no army company can make an engine on their own. Um, the engines go into the into the other cans. They're not modified at all. They're, and they're more about it. 
Yeah, and aviation doesn't pay that's its up, its, up, its, up, its, up, its fair share fair share yeah. um, well, for sure. The only way to start, if we had a full scarcity in Europe, and which we might, we could have you chasing to sort a lot of these fellas out, and, and uh, they are on about. Um, you, you talk about climate change. I can't. It has never been discussed, Patricia. And the figures have never been put out there about a nuclear, one nuclear power station will provide all the power that we want. There's 400 metres of concrete going into the base of all these uh, these uh, uh, these uh, windmills. And after 20 years, they must be all redone. And the day the wind isn't blowing, Gosh, that was the biggest joke last year. We weren't windy enough, so it didn't. Even the turbines we have didn't generate the electricity they were expecting to generate because we didn't have enough wind. Yeah, and I can't make up why the media and talk about nuclear power. I mean, there are nuclear power stations now that will, if there's any trouble, they'll close down automatically. They're safer and safer. I mean, there's no point in talking about Chernobyl. They're very different, yeah. yeah, Yeah, yeah. Different times. Yeah, yeah. So you, so you think that's what we need to? That as a, as a country, we need. I mean, other countries have nuclear power plants that run very successfully. So you, and, you're yeah. thinking we, but but I think you just mentioned the word nuclear, and it seems to raise alarm bells in people. It does, yeah. But I mentioned it there at a meeting and some places. But see, what about all the cancer that's causing? I mean, there's cancer. Uh, there was cancer before no, uh, nuclear. Like there's cancer every day of the week, and no one can prove it's nuclear. Like I mean, uh, unfortunately, people are dying of cancer every day of the week. Like I mean, mm-hmm. what, what we are inhaling from the smoke and all this. Like you know, I mean, um, there, there is the. Uh, I was listening to a program there was a, a BBC or whatnot, and this was on about nuclear power. Over eighty years, and the life of a nuclear power station could last been 50 to 80 years, right? Mm. The first 25 years, it would be more expensive. After that, it's cheaper. Yes, yes, yes. And, and um, he, he is, he, he, they're talking about access to nuclear power. Uh, in Chernobyl, uh, I think 49 people died from that accident, right? Mm. In, in, in Chernobyl. The initial accident, yeah. Yeah, and one in Japan. So since the Second World War, 50 people have died from nuclear accidents. Ah, but hang on now, with Chernobyl and uh, Fukushima, it was the fallout afterwards. Oh, yeah, yeah I know that yeah, was the yeah, fallout. Yeah, yeah. But, like, but, you, but, but you, because they've come on, the chances of what happened in Chernobyl happening again is is very slim. Zero. Yeah. And, I mean, these electric cars, I mean, right, maybe, but uh, they're mining out in... Um, I call it for the, out in the Congo for that uh, stuff for, for the batteries. Quarrying. You wouldn't want to go mining here for this. I mean, food prices are only going to go one way. And that's up. Actually, food food has been too cheap for the last 30 years here. And you have these left-wing politicians coming on. Oh, we have too much cattle. We can produce beef cheaper and cleaner than any country in the world. And we can also do with milk. We have, and I... We have by far the best food in the world by a country mile. By a country mile. You go to America, and it's eating meat out there, the very same as eating cattle. But sure, that's the reason that we export 90% of our beef, well, because we, other, we, country, we, other countries want it. Yeah. And you will see, you'll hear these politicians in saying, we are the most polluted, uh, uh, producing more carbon than any per head of population, right? That is factually wrong. Because 
if I produce a beef animal here and whatever carbon, it's counted here. If I bring in a ton of coal from England and I burn it here, it's counted here. Mm. So we, we, not, we have 5 million people in this country. Uh, we are feeding maybe another 40 or 50 million. So if you spread that out, we are actually, this, this, the, the way they're counted, I, I, I'm not, is, it, 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 it doesn't do small countries justice. They, they, they are part of, part of where they tot it up. We, we are feeding 50 million people. Like, so take the carbon that we are direct farmers producing, over 50 million instead of 5 million. There's a big difference, Patricia. Yeah, and 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 you would you would you'd feel for the farming community as well because something we touched on earlier in the week. It's this uncertainty of not knowing what's in the deal or what's going to be expected of them, and it's now looking like it's going to be pushed out until September. Okay, it's an issue we definitely will be going back to again, Dennis. Yeah, well, and I, I just I just like to make one other point for I go on. I want thanks to listen to me. Um, ten years ago, we were the new Celtic Tiger when 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 the all this crash happened. Right? Yeah. Uh, quarters were lifted and we were, uh, and farmers were told to go out, produce milk, and they put, and I tell you, there are no better business people are to spend money than the farm. He puts it into his business before he spends himself. Har- Harvest that. 2020, we all remember that, and all yeah, the farmers invested in it. He, he spent money himself, but I tell you, of the 50,000 people, and I don't believe any place, all the leaving Dublin Airport, there are too many farmers. Okay. All right. All right, Dennis, listen, thank you for that. And uh, thanks uh, for joining us. 0818-103-103. Some of your other thoughts coming into us. We were talking with Bernardo's about the cost of going back to school. Uh, Joe was on to us. This is to do with the, the crested, the branded uniforms where his children go to school. They have to travel to the nearest town in order to purchase the uniforms that can only be purchased in one shop. I feel this process needs to change where choice should be given and that's very much backed up in Bernardo's uh, survey because those crested uniforms and it has come up before. We've had former ministers for education saying to the schools stop going with the crested uniforms and let schools, you know, you pick a navy jumper or a grey jumper or a wine jumper, whatever it is, but let parents buy their jumpers wherever they want. But unfortunately not all schools have uh, signed up for that. Okay, a number of listeners, can I say, when I mentioned at the top of the programme that horrific case that uh, that we had yesterday out of the courts of that servant Gardaí who's been jailed for his horrific mental and physical torture of his ex-partner. And I think the fact that his ex-partner was fighting cancer at the time just makes this one of the most horrific cases we've certainly come across in quite some time. And of course, it's opened up the whole debate around people of respectability thinking they can get away with that type of abuse. And that's why the Gardaí themselves on the steps of the uh, Dublin uh, Circuit Court where it pains to point out to any other women or men who's suffering abuse at the hands of a serving Garda to please come forward that they will be believed and they will be listened to. Uh, Somebody says, Patricia, I remember somebody being harassed many, many years ago, a young man who actually took his own life. It was by a serving member of Garda, Shia Kona. That man went on to be promoted. That was the way of dealing with it at the time. Hi, Patricia, the sentence that that Garda got three years and three months is a pure joke. It doesn't fit the crime by a long shot. What an insult to that poor poor woman. He deserves to get a much harder time and a harder uh, sentence. He doesn't deserve rights. He took 
the woman's rights away from her. He needs a dose of his own medicine. It'll be no bad thing, well earned, and it will be well deserved. Well, the fact that the judge could only give up to five years was because he was found guilty of coercive control and under coercive control, a law that only became an an offence in January of 2019. The maximum that can be handed down for coercive control is five years. And then, of course, the judge took into account his guilty verdict and all of that. And he came out at three years and three months. Liam Blackpool says, Patricia, uh, in reference to that Gardaí who was found guilty of course of control fair play to the Gardaí that came across those texts that he's honesty to bring it to the attention of the proper authority uh, says Lehman Blackpool absolutely absolutely because the victim herself didn't make the complaints to the Gardaí there was a separate investigation by Gardaí into a complaint by him the perpetrator Paul Moody brought against a relative of his victim and that sparked concerns that there was an abusive relationship going on and then the gar- some of her guards she called and decided to make contact with this woman who was Paul Moody's partner and that the investigation stemmed from that so yes absolutely that guard or whoever um, maybe there was more guardy involved who were investigating the initial charge brought against him he was trying to bring a case against one of her relatives yet yeah, they need to be commended for sure and then someone else says listening to what that, that guard did to that poor woman could you imagine meeting the likes of him if you were out on the road and you got stopped at night by uh, him and of course listen it is fair to say that you know there unfortunately and it happens almost in every profession it happens within the church with priests it's happened in the schools with nuns it happens within teachers there's going to be bad apples there as well and I'm sure every member in Garda Siakona must be hanging their head in shame that it was one of their own uh, did this but let's not tar all Gardaí with the one brush we've got very good Gardaí out there uh, as well Mary in the city said Patricia I went through uh, cancer But that woman must be so strong to be able to survive the way she did and the way he was going on and the way he was controlling her. I also do not think he will do the full three years and three months at all. Yeah, he'll probably get out in good behaviour. He should have gotten 20 years. I also feel his pension should be taken away from him. It is disgraceful that he's allowed, that we're told he'll still be allowed to draw down his um, a pension. Ethan Mallow said that Gardaí should not be receiving any pension. If there is any pension entitlements, it should be directed to that poor woman for the years of physical and mental abuse he put her through. And Pat Infamoy said the judge's hands were tied in this maximum sentence is five years. But Pat Infamoy felt he should have been given the full five years in uh, total. There should also be an outcry that it was only a five-year maximum sentence. They should look again at course of control and they should up the sentence to at least 20 years. That's from Pat Infamoy. That's just a sample, as I say, of some of the calls we received since I mentioned that case earlier. 0818 103 103. And I always like to update people on scam calls. Marion Milford has been on to say she received a scam call earlier this week just to make people aware. And Stephen and Clannacilty got a similar one and it's to do with scam scam calls purporting to be from revenue. Many callers receiving calls from an 049 number and when you answer it it's claiming to be from the revenue commissioners. It obviously is not from the revenue commissioners so please ignore. 0818103103 John Paul takes calls. Text WhatsApp 0862 103103 103 C103 Jobs 
Carpenters are wanted. It's for a roofing job in Blarney. Call 087-165-0527. Staff nurse and a healthcare assistant uh, positions are available at St. Gubbins Nursing Home. That's in Ballyagram. Email CVs, please, to st.gubbins at gmail.com. A general construction workers wanted for Cork and the surrounding areas. Call 021-233-9120. And a part of full-time Arctic truck driver is required for a large tillage farm that's in South Cork. Call 087-2537871. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Promoter, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now the doll could get a second chamber under proposals aimed at making politics more family friendly for politicians and indeed for the staff at Leinster House. But Cork Fine Gael Senator Gerry Bottomer isn't sure it's a viable plan and he joins me to explain why. Good morning to you Gerry. Well good morning Patricia. And Gerry I will get to you trying to get to the bottom of the summer of discontent that so many people are experiencing at, at our airports particularly at Dublin Airport because I know you were part of the Oireachtas Transport Committee yesterday. But firstly, I want to talk to you about this new uh, proposal for the for the doll. The suggestion is Oireachtas business will be held in two chambers at the same time. So proceedings then could finish up earlier in, into the uh, evening. Uh, why, why do you believe that's not viable? Well, first of all, it's not a new proposal because the Cairncorla established a committee or a commission to look at making Parliament more people-friendly and more family-friendly. And, and can I say at the beginning... All of us who are privileged to serve in Leinster House uh, recognise that it must become more family-friendly, more people-focused, uh, and that's not because of the member. It's due to it's, it's, it's to the staff and to those who work uh, here in Leinster House. And I'm here today because I was in the committee yesterday. Um, I, I I think the issue of the of the dual chamber is one that I would have concerns about from a number of perspectives. One is the actual constitutionality of it. Is it actually constitutional? The constitution makes reference to a chamber. It doesn't make reference to a dual chamber. Secondly, you're going to have parallel chambers running concurrently. So, for example, let's just say leaders' questions is at 12 o'clock, the order of business is at 12 o'clock. So a member uh, then who wants to, to, to raise questions on legislation can't necessarily go in because there's a session we'll say in the other chamber on education or on agriculture or whatever so how how then do you balance and allow for the fact that every member should be entitled to go into leaders questions shouldn't have to be making a choice um to me it, it's a different so like your set pieces like your your leaders' questions, your questions of promised legislation, uh, your 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 set pieces are, are set in stone. Uh, are we creating an, uh, sort of an RTE one, RTE two type of approach to, to Parliament, which I don't think we should? My other question then is in the context of what's the cost? Um, and we saw in terms of the Doll and Shannon sitting in the convention centre. At a time when the when the I believe the rental of the convention centre was free, uh, 
there but, would be no savings in this. And and I know you'll argue that we're not sitting later at night. Yeah. Uh, but but we're still looking at where where are we going to put this new chamber? Because for example, I was leader to Shannon from 2016 to 20, uh, and as you know, we had to do retrofitting and refurbishing refurbishment work in Leinster House. We had to find an alternative Shannon chamber for 60 people. So you're now talking about a doll chamber potentially of 160 plus members. And if you don't make it as big as that, then you're precluding people who may wish to go. Yeah, yeah. And I also think your point, which you can't be in two places at once. But I do do know that other governments do it. I mean, Westminster. Westminster do it. They're not probably the greatest example. They don't have two chambers, though, Patricia. Do they not? That's my knowledge. And Australia also have it as well, have have a similar arrangement. But could I just make one other point? I think part of what we need to do as House of Directors, and I, I say this having the privilege and the honour of serving for 15 years as a chair of a committee, as the leader of the Shannon, um for four years, and, and as a member of the Dáil and Shannon, what I would like us to see do is three things. One is to resource the drafts to Bill's office more, because as you know, you, you've seen every year a pipeline of legislation coming at the last minute, um, why can't that legislation be more streamlined in terms of better planning through better collaboration between the Taoiseach, the Whip's office, and the drafting office and the Bill's office? That's one. Two is the issue of initiating more legislation in the Shannon. So why do we have to have the majority of bills commence its life in the Dáil chamber when you could have a pipeline out of the Shannon having been with less people, but probably a better degree of interrogation and investigation legislation in the Shannon. And then the third thing is, are sitting the times, and this could potentially be controversial, which I don't mean it to be, is that we start at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday. What is wrong with the idea, as Enda Kenny had in the, in the last second last doll, of sitting on a Friday or potentially on a Monday? Because TDs want to be in their constituency And office. then therein lies your other yeah, conundrum. Yeah. And by the way, just, can I just point out that the, there are, in when, when I mentioned uh, across the water in, the, in England, uh, they, have, they, they have the House of Commons, but they have a second chamber. It's, it's called Westminster, Westminster Hall. It conducts about 16 hours of parliamentary business uh, every week. So, so I'm not saying that that's the perfect example. But just but anything I think that can be I think you've got some great suggestions and I think that's what needs to be teased out I mean and could I make the point Patricia if I may sorry and, and, and you as you know you so you take the job you're in you take the job of a journalist or, or of a school teacher or whoever you know all of us work at times in unsociable working conditions and times and unfortunately and I haven't yet got the answer to this the world of politics is not necessarily family-friendly to the politician or to the staff. Um, or to their families. Or to their families. So let me give you an example. So tonight, for example, Senator Tim Lumberd, who's in West Cork, could potentially leave his house, travel to Bandon, go on to Clannacilty, and end up at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock tonight in Castleton Bear. Mm. And then all the way back home. As an example, that's not, you know, so that's not to do with Parliament. 
in my case, I could, I'm could. i lucky to live in a city constituency, so for me to go from Bishopstown to Black Rock to Carrigaline is doable within the half hour, if you know what I mean, in terms of geographical driving. So what I'm saying is politics doesn't operate in a silo in terms of, well, you, can't, you clock out at five o'clock and that's it. But the, yeah. the fundamental point that I want to make is this. For the staff of Leinster House, there is an absolute, it's crazy that you, you could be potentially here until one o'clock in the morning or, or 12 o'clock. But the other point is, which we didn't see and wasn't really highlighted, was the drafts, the bills office. There was a piece of legislation last week before we broke up where they were in, they were in until half seven. And then the guillotine was put in, so the legislation was curtailed, and we didn't get to the amendments. That, and they had scrupulously and meticulously put together the, the list of amendments, the, the chronological order, and 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 and, the, and the, the drafting. So that's got to change because yes, we need to make Parliament more people friendly, more family friendly. Um, but let's do it in a way that we can do it. Uh, actionable that can have a, a positive outcome and not okay, talking well, about well, I just, Yeah, I think it's good that it's all being teased out because I know this forum on a family-friendly and inclusive parliament, yes. they were one of the ones that recommended the second chamber. Yes. But I think put everything on the table and, and tease it out. Okay. And, and, and as you know, I'm at, as, as, you can te- as you can see from our conversation and listen to from our conversation, I've actually thought about this because I've been the leader of the Shannon, I've been in the committee chair, so I understand the implication and the back the backlog and, and the pressures of time. But it, it is important to recognise that we as politicians who are practicing, have to recognise it isn't just about us. It's about the people that work with mm. us. It's about our staff. It's about the people in the house. And as you said, it's about our families. Mm. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? I mean, I, I, I think any, particularly people raising young families, um, it, 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 the thought of going into politics, I think, actually turns people off because you're it, going to be away from home. You speak to anyone who was raised in a household where somebody was a politician and they'll all talk about the effect that it had on family life. Anyway, uh, let's, the, the debate has started. Let's see where it goes. Now, I want to talk to you about what happened yesterday. You're a member of the Oireachtas Transport Committee and you hauled in people from Aer Lingus. There was people, I think there was people from the DAA uh, as well, did you did you feel at the end of it? Did you get any sense that we have come to the end of this summer of discontent, which was the phrase you used yourself? I, I don't think that we will, because there is a global issue around aviation. The worry that we all have is that we won't we won't see an improvement until it's too late. Uh, the important point from yesterday was that we were able to have a conversation and a and, and, a, and a holding to account. Of, of a number of groups, the, the baggage handling companies, the air, airline, uh, which had the most, you know, uh, flights cancelled, their Lingus, and Dublin Airport Authority. Um, what's disconcerting was, and to be fair to Aer Lingus yesterday, they made a very good point uh, around the travelling public coming too early for their flights, Dublin Airport, not prepared to concede that it's two and a half and three and a half you know, three and a half for transatlantic, two and a half for, for you know, short haul. Aer Lingus was saying that that that, that advice is compounding the problem. Uh, but yeah, but well, people are absolutely terrified of missing their flight. I know, and I have heard of people, and I've seen people online who have turned up seven, eight hours before their flight because they're desperate to get on the plane. Patricia, Patricia, I'm travelling. Unfortunately, I can't travel out of Cork because there's no flight to go out of Cork on the bank holiday weekend out of Dublin. And I'm telling you. I am taking the air coach that night to be in the airport overnight for my six o'clock flight because I am absolutely petrified. And you're right, the travelling public do not want to see 1,400 people again missing flights out of Dublin Airport. Now, in saying that, Patricia, Dublin Airport 
authority have made huge changes and and there's a much better flow of of passengers but i suppose the the big issue for the travelling public as you said is is the, is the is the reliability is the whole issue of of the last baggage um and and there's a global issue around you know central europe north america around passengers transferring flights to or from for example your main carrier for the next leg of the journey so like we heard yesterday there's 4000 bags lost presently or currently there's that means from a Lingus perspective 1200 have are, are if in inverted commas open swiss port of 100 and 2987 are from the sky handling partners so in that case of sky handling they're saying that the backlog will take a month to clear it's crazy. It's, it's crazy. absolutely and, crazy. And, that's and of the course, problem. the minute you mention Dublin Airport to any of us here in Cork, I mean, you've uttered it yourself by saying you've no choice but go to Dublin because of wherever you're you're choosing to fly to. They don't fly from Cork. I saw Pat Dawson only this morning of the Irish Travel Agents Association on the front page of the Echo calling on the DAA and the airlines to share the love and to ex- allow the expansion of flights in Cork and indeed to other regional airports. Absolutely, and and I suppose that's the piece that we, as a committee, will come back to in the autumn. Is our aviation policy in the context of support for the regional airports? And I suppose the one thing we learned from COVID, from an aviation perspective, is that our regional airports development capital and, and expenditure program should benefit airports like Cork and and there I say it's Shannon, but we're talking about Cork and our Cork station, because that money allows for marketing, allows for route retention, route development, uh, and it should be continued to be given to airports like Cork to help promote and support their work. So what we need to see happen here, and, and airlines vote with their feet, Patricia, as you know, it's passenger numbers, passenger loads, bums and seats. Um, but we have a hinterland in Cork. So if you take, if you drew a line from Cork all the way to Port Leash, including most of Munster, with the exception perhaps of Limerick and Clare, um, and come all the way back down. There's enough of a population to support Cork Airport to give us critical mass. Yeah, but you need to put the flights in. The the, the Dublin Airport has 300 flights a day. If we're lucky in Cork, we've between 30 and 35. We need to level the playing field. We, we do. And, and again, to be fair to, to Cork Airport, they have been very strong in in their marketing campaign and in their attraction of routes. Yes, we've lost routes. We, we've seen the whole aviation sector change because of, you know, Stobart left, uh, the, the, the kind of short-haul uh, regional kind of routes out of Aer Lingus. Then we've seen Emerald Air come in. Um, but there is a need now for us to see a, a recalibration of the uh, passenger numbers in terms of usage of, a, of, of, our, of our main airport versus the regional airports. And I hope that will happen from a Cork yeah, perspective. Yeah. And, and, and I did see the, the Cork Airport Communications Manager, uh, Barry Holland, uh, saying that this isn't up to the DAA, that it's, it's the introduction of any new routes is ultimately a decision for the airlines. But I think what we need to now do is put everything in place to make it attractive for those we airlines do. to say, Absolutely. OK, let's look at Cork, let's look at Shannon, let's look at the other regions. That's, that's a combination of marketing, it's a combination of landing charges, the combination of what's on offer at the airport, but it's also, critically, about people supporting and, and being able to say... Well, I don't think there's anybody in Cork who had a choice between flying out of Cork, including your good self, and flying out of Dublin would offer Dublin over Cork. You'd be surprised, Patricia, at, 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 the, at the leakage of, of, of passengers uh, that would go to 
trouble, but you are right. The well, office. Well, not with everything that's going on in Dublin at the moment. Everyone just okay. gets stressed out at the thought of it. I accept that completely, and you are right. People do get stressed out completely, and they do. We, and, we, and understandable. Okay, well, we wish you lots of luck on your flight out of out of Dublin Airport. Send us a postcard, and uh, we'll do. chat to you again soon. Thanks, Thanks for that. Uh, bye bye, bye bye. That is Cork-based Fine Gael Senator Cherry Bottomer. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Uh, John Paul taking your calls. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. It was announced this week that the United Kingdom is to host the Eurovision Song Contest next year, 2023, on behalf of Ukraine. The announcement was made by the European Broadcasting Union and the BBC. Joining me with his views, our Eurovision correspondent, John, Johnny O'Malley. Mahoney. Good morning to you, Johnny. Good morning, Trish. How and, are you? And I'm very well and, and you're welcome. Uh, this was speculated for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, it was kind of, a, I think it was announced around uh, mid-June that um, it wouldn't be hosted in Ukraine for obvious reasons. And um, speculation was that it was going to be the UK, but there was nothing confirmed until this week, even though the um, the fact that they had come second, they would have been first, you know, to, given first refusal. And I think, um, you know, it was even mentioned before the song contest, before the final in May, that um, UK were hotly tipped as were Ukraine. And if um, if they were to come second, that, you know, it was highly likely the Eurovision in 2023 would be held in, in the United Kingdom. So that that's what has happened and it's been announced and confirmed that that is the case. And of course, they did come second with uh, Sam Ryder. Sam Ryder. Sam Ryder, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that a lot of people said would have won the competition only for there was a lot of sympathy votes uh, for Ukraine, even though this is 100%. Let's not take yeah. away from U- Ukraine. It was a great song. And are the BBC absolutely thrilled that they're hosting it? I would say they are, to be honest. It's, it's a great achievement for any um, broadcaster to have an opportunity to do something like Eurovision. Um, it's it's a big dream, I'm sure, for um, like producers and directors and all that, because it's a, it's a big um it's a big milestone in anyone's career to be involved in it, but I'm sure the BBC are. It's not something, <clears throat> excuse me, that P, that any broadcaster would take on lightly, and um, it's it's a big uh, it's a big event to do. Um, so I would think, yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of support for it. Um, in, in the UK, but especially for the BBC, I think but yeah, they're, they're, they're delighted. The, the, the BBC, the, the BBC are funded differently in that they can't take sponsorship as other broadcasters would be able to do. So that's that's got to be they're going to need a helping yeah, I, hand. I, I would, yeah, I'd say that you know um, there will be some you know there'll be some way of getting around that to uh, to, to host this year or host next year. But I, at, at this point, I, I don't know what the situation is for them. But yeah, that, that is a difficult thing. But, um, you know, there, there, there'd be some, something involved in that, you know, whether, whether we, we know about it at, at this stage or not. But yeah, it, it is a big, it financially, it's, it's, huge. it's a big board. It's, yeah, it, it's huge. Now, will, will Ukraine still automatically qualify for the grand final? Yeah, it's been confirmed. They will automatically qualify. So automatically qualified would be the big five in the UK, Spain, France, Germany and Italy, plus Ukraine, as if Ukraine were hosting. And um, so there's, there's six qualifiers already. Yeah, and, they're, they're uh, not taking the win. You know, as, as winners. And there's going to be like Ukrainian elements in the production. They're, yeah, they're going to work with the um, Ukrainian PBC company and uh, they're going to, you know, there's, it's. I'm. I'm sure it's going to be a very, 
British sh sh show as if, say, if, if France were hosting on behalf of um, Ukraine, there would be a very friend, very much a French element to it. So there's going to be a British element, but there's going to be a Ukrainian element as well. And I'm sure they'll include Kalush Orchestra, but I'm sure Sam Ryder will have a big part to play in the show as well, having come second, because they, you know, they'd be recognising that. And I'm sure that's part of the agreement that could be made that, you know, there's both, both elements will be part of the show next year. Yeah. Do you think our own Graham Norton is in the running to host it? You know, it's very difficult to say. Um, <clears throat> Graham did the Greatest Hit show um, back in 2015 and did it very professionally. It's, you know, it's, it's anybody's guess at this point. I mean, the, the, um, there's lots of great presenters in, in the BBC and we don't know if it's going to be somebody new, if it's going to be, you know, you, you could see the likes of Tess Daly and Claudia Winkleman, Ryland, who was a big um, up-and-coming star, I suppose you could say, in, in uh, television. We, um, our own Ronan Keating does the one show from time to time and mm. he's done Eurovision already. You know, who's to say that Ronan won't be approached? You know, I think there'll be a lot of people out there looking for the gig and um, it'll be a big... Um, a big undertaking and I, I think we whoever will be doing it, it it won't be down to one person I'd say anyway because mm -hmm. in recent years obviously it's been two three and four so um that remains to be seen and of course no names or anything mentioned yet because it's it's kind of early days I'm sure there's a lot of work going on in the background that we haven't seen or heard already and, and won't that's, until that's won't until an announcement is is made because the yeah, other and question this, and justice yeah. um th this is the fifth time that the uk are hosting not having won the previous year oh yeah and it'll be their eighth time hosting the the most um the most hosts of eurovision um from 2023 so that that's a big thing as well for them when did they last host they last hosted in 98, back after Katrina and the Waves won in 97 in Dublin, um, and it was in Birmingham. And um, Birmingham are um, rumoured, well, there's lots of cities obviously now um, putting in bids. There's a, a bidding competition at the minute um, since, since this, and Birmingham are putting in a bid. And even though I don't think it will be Birmingham, one thing they have in their favour is that um, the Commonwealth Games are starting this weekend in Birmingham. So a lot of the infrastructure is probably the wrong word to use, but the, the work that goes into hosting all these things and, you know, they would be in place already to kind of kick in for another six or 12 months, you know. Could you see Belfast being in the running? Somebody wants to know. <clears throat> I'd love to see it in the running, to be honest. <clears throat> to be honest, it's... Um, it, it's up to Belfast to put in a good bid. Um, it's having the arena, having the, an arena with minimum 10,000 seats. You need the hotels and a, a local airport, which Belfast does have, you know. Um, it is definitely possible to, to do it in Belfast. I think it would be great. But at this point, the front runners are Manchester and Glasgow. And they were kind of, even when it was announced that Ukraine were not going to be hosting and it was speculated it was going to be UK, the, Two front runners were Glasgow and Manchester, and they both have the facilities easily to um, stage it. So um, it's all it'll be all down to the fine tuning now. Who can put in the best bid? And no more than say bidding for the Olympics. Any um, country or city looking to host the Olympics, this is a big undertaking, and they want everything to be, you know, done right. And there's a lot of there'll be a lot of contracts to be signed and a lot of um, detail to be as as probably people know when it was in Mill Street. It wasn't just a case of, oh, we're going to Mill Street. There was a lot of work involved Absolutely. to make and sure of course, that it could be when, done and who, done successfully. Whatever city.
city hosts. It's a huge financial boost to the area, isn't it? Big time. And that's why every city wants it. You know, people say Eurovision. Ah, oh, what about it? But, you know, it, it involves such a big amount, of, a large amount of people and so many, you know, there's it, it, it is a big undertaking. And, um, you know, it brings in a lot to any city. And it's it's a great way of, um, you know, advertising, you know, city, country, whatever. Um, to in the in the um in the public eye, and it, it this is worldwide. You know, it's not just Europe. This is now worldwide, and it's um it's a big thing and a big advantage to any in any city. You you couldn't buy the tourism promotion you get out of it. Will no, you, will not you, not, will and you... even if you look at Ireland when when the when we hosted it three consecutive years back in the nineties, the um I believe like the what what Ireland got back from it was was um enormous. You yeah. know, and uh, that that's something good. Will you travel yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought you would. The fact it's so close. Yeah, and uh, the amount of people that I've spoken to kind of since June, like when it was kind of confirmed Ukraine, U- Ukraine or UK, um, people that, you know, I'm, I, you know I'm, I'm finished now, whatever. The fact that it's there, regardless of city, it's a case that no, if it could be for a day or a night or a week yeah. or a few days. But yeah, the opportunity is there and it's it's an easy hop on a flight, less than an hour you're there, you know, and uh, that that convenience, you know, can only be so it's something to, to look forward to as well, you know. And Camille, I hear you're heading over, is it next week to, to London for the, the ABBA? Show. That's right. Yeah, eventually, <laughs> nearly. I I suppose I have been waiting for this since the seventies, since I was a child. It was something, um, you know, that uh, unfortunately when I we were in the RDS in nineteen seventy nine, I was too young. There wasn't a hope that I was going to get to it. But um, cut a long story short, yeah, the Abbey Voyage show is on in London, and uh, as far as I as as far as I know, or from what I've been hearing. It's just as if it was an Abigail. Yeah, so um, yeah. off I've, next weekend, yeah, to yeah, uh, London I've, for that. I've heard so, of uh, people I, saying it's it's incredible. It's just incredible. So you will certainly yeah. enjoy that. We'll speak again, uh, Johnny. Thank you for that. Thanks, Trish. Talk to you soon. Uh, you too. Bye bye. That is our, our lovely Johnny Omani, our Eurovision correspondent. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. Now, before I get to some of your commentary in on issues we've been addressing today, some emails and other comments in. Mary is wondering, could we get any update on the €1,000 pandemic bonus promised by the government to all the people in healthcare that worked through the pandemic in the front line. Mary says, I worked in the private sector and we haven't received a red cent of the money yet. And they are, the government are already on about giving €100 Euro extra on the back to school allowance. Wouldn't they finish off one project before they start another? I don't think any family desperate for that extra €100 Euro would agree with you on that. I know the last time we dealt with it was with the Nursing Homes Ireland and obviously they're inv- they were very much from the private uh, sector uh, within the HSE. The last time I checked, uh, three quarters of the HSE staff were entitled to €1,000 pandemic bonus had received it. But up to when we last checked, which was last week, the week before, nobody in the private sector has been paid yet. If anybody is working in the private sector and was a frontline worker and is entitled to this €1,000, can you give us any update on have you received it or any thought, any promise of when you are to receive it? I'll, I'll do my best to see 
if there is any further update as I say it was about two weeks ago when we last dealt with it and I've heard nothing since to indicate that the money is coming anytime soon unfortunately don't have good news for you there uh, Mary but if we get anything I certainly will bring it to you yesterday we were talking about Balabui Horse Fair and how it's moving well it's, it's slightly shorter the festival is uh, this year in Councillor Deirdre Kelly was on explaining to us why they have shortened the festival this year. That's prompted Sean to say, I find it hard to believe that the traditional horse fair in Dunmanway is being changed after hundreds of years of tradition. Carami and Pug Fair would never break with this tradition. These fairs are part of our tradition and our heritage and they're worth so much to the local economy, particularly in these hard times. Is it not time that fam? It, it is a time of year that families come home to Dunmanway and the surrounding areas and everybody meets up. Friends and family might only arrive on the Sunday or Monday to enjoy the Tuesday and Wednesday and then stay on for the rest of the week. They'll arrive now on the Sunday and Monday and it'll all be over. This change, uh, this change will give them no reason to stay. Uh, Patricia, the councillor Deirdre Kelly, who spoke with you yesterday, uh, was talking about the builders' holidays. Now, the builders' holidays has changed, and that was one of the reasons they decided to just run with the festival over the weekend instead of having it on the Tuesday and the Wednesday as well. Uh, tell tell her that the builders' holidays are always the first two weeks in August, like many other people's holidays. Uh, will they be changed too, says Sean. So Sean is one of those not happy. And actually, the reason Deirdre Kelly, Councillor Deirdre Kelly joined us was that we had a call in from a listener who was very disappointed to hear that the Tuesday and Wednesday of Balabui Horse Fair was being uh, removed. 0818103103. And with, by the way, just as a word of warning was on to us to say what he described as two young lads in a small silver car where was driving around the Kildallery area, the Glamworth area and parts of Fomoy. And this was yesterday. And Paddy said it looked like they were around, kind of scouting around and checking out people's properties. Now, obviously, Paddy and Glamworth got onto Fomoy Gardaí and they were notified, but just to warn others, they, not just in the North Cork area, can I say right across Cork City into County because they could have moved on and if they got if they were rumbled that they were scouting areas it's uh, very possible they moved on to another area so just mindful of that now it might have been something very innocent but Paddy just got a feeling that they were scouting around checking out people's properties it was a small silver car with two young lads uh, in it and PJ in Domanway when we were talking yesterday about Ballin and Week got on to say Patricia would you please give a mention to the first inaugural Irish to traditional trades fair that's going to happen this coming weekend. There will be about 30 different vintage crafts will be on display. People are travelling from all over Cork. It's going to be on Saturday and Sunday in Bally Longford Mill and that's at Bally Longford in uh, Kerry near Tarbish but there's a lot of people travelling from Cork for it they're hopeful that they will have at least 30 blacksmiths working together on the day that'll be quite a sight to see so that's the first inaugural Irish Traditional Trades Fair if you want to go along on the weekend in Bally Longford in Kerry near Tarbish uh, glad to give that a mention for PJ in Bantier. We were talking about politicians and the long days that they put in and this call to try to make politics more family friendly, not just for the politicians, but also for the people that work in Leinster House. And there is this suggestion that's been bandied about of a second chamber. Not everyone, the, the, the 
Senator Jerry Butterworth joined us because he doesn't think it's going to work because it can't be in two places at one time. So he doesn't think the principle of it will work. But it's just opened up the whole uh, debate. Some is also not thinking it's such a great idea. Patricia, the idea for a second chamber, I thought that was a full state joke. So this listener, when I heard it, have you seen on any normal day how many TDs are actually in the chamber? They also have the Senate chamber, plus they've all of the committee rooms. What a crazy idea, which is true. How often do we see a full doll chamber? Not very often. Nancy in Bantry listened with interest to Senator Jerry Bottomer talking about how tough life is. And it almost sounds like it can be an inconvenient life, the life of a politician. Nancy would like to point out to all politicians, aren't they well paid for it? If they don't want to do the job and they don't want to put the long hours in, then maybe it's time for all the politicians to change uh, careers. And a lot of people on that same sort of a, a vein, including Tim in Dunmanway, uh, Colm in Botvind, all saying they're getting well paid with expenses for the job of a politician. If they're not happy, tell them to move on. So. A lot of people not really having sympathies for our elected representatives. But my point on it would be because it's the Count Corla is heading this up, Sean O'Farrell. He wants to make it more, more, more family focused, more family friendly. And it does, knowing that there's going to be long hours involved in it, it does put off people, I think, getting involved in politics. And because of that, we could be missing out on people who could be really, really, really good politicians. But because of the effect it will have on family life, it might turn people off. So I think the debate needs to be opened up and I'm glad to see that they are at least looking at trying to make it more family friendly. 0818 103 103. And then a number of people reacting to Dennis, who joined us. We were talking about the carbon emissions and carbon emissions for the agricultural uh, sector. A number of people commenting on what Dennis had to say. Peter was on to say the debate currently is should Ireland cut the agricultural admission somewhere between 22% and 30% and that's where the debate is going on at the moment trying to work out where that cut should be for the agricultural sector. Peter reckons the debate should be on not cutting admissions at all. He said we produce food environmentally friendly in this country. Peter has travelled the world from Canada to New Zealand and we produce food much more environmentally friendly compared to other countries so he doesn't see any need for a cut in any admissions within the agricultural uh, sector. Patricia, I listen with great interest to your chat with Dennis. Our cattle production is based on grass mainly. This is the most environmentally friendly way to produce beef. In South America, they're demolishing the rainforests every day of the week. How crazy is that? We will be importing their produce with none of the regulations that we follow here in this country. I disagree with Dennis, though, on just one point, and that was his option that we should be looking at a nuclear power plant. On every other aspect, he is 100% correct. Food prices will skyrocket, particularly if they are pushed, the farming community are pushed to a 30% reduction. That's from Michael. Thank you for your text, Michael. And then on WhatsApp, Patricia and John were on to say, totally agree with everything that Dennis had to say on your programme earlier. I still say the farmers should be left alone and the farm animals. It's not like farmers don't know how to play their part when it comes to climate change measures. They don't have to be dictated to 
by people wearing white collars and ties in the government. Let the government TDs practice what they preach and stop flying off on jets to other countries. Let the government bring the airlines to bear and let them pay their fair share. Stop blaming the farmers and their animals for everything. And that's from John and Patricia. Hi, is there a name on this? There isn't. Hi, just listening to your segment on the impact on farming when it comes to climate change. In my opinion, it's ridiculous to even contemplate culling part of the national herd. They should be offering more supports to farmers to be more environmentally friendly. Allow them to generate solar or wind power from their farms. Support the development of green belts on farms, which would support wildlife and don't penalise them for keeping areas of their farms in a natural state. Develop viable markets for the byproducts of farming. Example, wool, hides, manure. Use more environmentally friendly products such as dips and animal treatments. All these things are controlled by the Department of Agriculture and farmers are penalised for straying from the norm and so are restricted from changing their current practices. A little bit more imagination and creative thinking will go a long way in helping to reduce the farmer's carbon footprint. We need to protect our indigenous industries or we'll continue to pay through the nose for everything and then we'll have no bargaining power in international markets. Areas of injuries such as data centres use almost 30% of the country's electricity, not to mention their impact on water consumption, but they don't often come under the spotlight. Nor is there much focus on their plans to reduce their impact on the country's resources. Farming, it seems, is an easy target. And we keep hearing that. I mean, we spoke only with Deputy David Stanton yesterday who was saying, and he was along with other Fine Gael TDs and Senators saying stop finger pointing. All the finger pointing seems to be at the uh, farmers and the biggest debate is around the cut to the farming sectors, the agricultural sector and a lot of the finger blaming and you know I think people are saying that that's wrong that so much of it is is being pointed at farmers. 0818 103 103 and still getting in uh, commentary and people talking about that dreadful case that I started the programme with of that member of Angarda Siakona who was found guilty uh, yesterday of a course of control and he's been sent to jail for three years and three months. Somebody says, Trish, is it true or did I miss here that there's over 100 Gardaí out on suspension for all kinds of things including corruption and assault and drug p- drug possession. Is that true? Uh, it is. The, this figure was revealed at the start of July. 110 Gardaí are currently suspended from the force. 17 are on suspicion uh, under the heading, under suspension, under the heading of sexual offences. There was figures actually that came from the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. She revealed that 23 Gardaí had been suspended to date this year, but it brings the total to 117. And there was a breakdown of the offences. Uh, the 17 were for... Um, the, the sexual offences. Okay, along with sexual offences, the other chief reason for the suspension of Gardaí was theft and fraud, fraudery. 17 suspension. A further 16 were suspended or are suspended for allegedly perverting the course of justice. 13 are suspended for discreditable conduct. A further 10 have been suspended under the heading of drugs slash misuse of drugs. 
10 are suspended under the heading of domestic violence. Nine are currently suspended for assault causing harm. Six are suspended for the misuse of accessing Garda information. Eight are suspended for allegedly driving under the influence with two suspended for the misuse of Garda resources, one for neglect of duty and one for corrupt, corrupt improper practices. And as I say, the, those figures were released by the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, and she released them at the start of July. So no, unfortunately, to that listener, uh, you didn't, you didn't mishear uh, anything. And I think, just let me check, was there other in on this? Mary in the City said, oh no, I, I got to Mary in the City, my apologies on that one. Okay, that was just another one that was in. Thank you for that. Okay, and just one final one I want to get to here. This is again is picking up on something that Jerry Bottomer said when we were talking about the Oireachtas Committee meeting yesterday, the Transport Oireachtas Committee, and they had in the heads of Dublin Airport, they had Aer Lingus in, and they had the ground handling uh, companies in just trying to put an end to what has been a summer of discontent at the at our country's main airport and I was talking with Jerry because I was also picking up on the front page of the Echo today a piece by Ellen O'Regan where she spoke with Pat Dawson the uh, Irish Travel Agents Association of course is based here in here, here in Cork he is the boss of the Irish Travel Agents Association and Pat was calling um the manage the the DAA to share the love and to allow the expansion of flights in Cork and other regional airports to try to meet the demand amongst holidaymakers. And Jerry Bottomer was himself saying, not through his own choice, but he's going out of Dublin Airport this weekend because where he wants to go to, there isn't a flight out of Cork. And he says that's not his choice, but he if he wants to fly to where he wants to go to, he has to go out of Dublin. And that you know we have that discussion then. Why are there not more flights out of Cork, particularly with the stats that there are about three hundred flights a day out of Dublin airport and at best we have about 30 to 35 out of Cork and we have that beautiful beautiful airport uh, beautiful terminal building Heidi says hi and oh yeah and then that led to we need to use Cork airport more and I said but surely we would I mean I certainly it's a no brainer for me if I have a choice between Cork and Dublin I know the flight that I'm going to be taking and he says you'll be surprised at people who bypass Cork airport even though that might have been in the past I think with the way Dublin is going more and more people will be doing everything in their power to avoid it and Heidi agrees with me and says no way would we as a family fly out of Dublin if we had a choice Cork would always be our preferred uh, airport it's a great or airport, one of the best, and not enough is said about it. It's a wonderful airport. And Pat Dawson of the Travel Agents Association uh, said he was calling on the government to put a limit on the flight capacity at Dublin Airport, and then by doing that, he'd spread the load of heavily booked flights to other regional airports because he said that flights are very, very heavily booked at the moment because there is this pent-up demand that we've been talking about since the impact of the COVID certainty came through. Cork and other regional airports will need to expand in 2023 and he says the DAA will have to look at spreading the love because he said we can't have 85% of the flying capacity all in one airport for all sorts of reasons never mind delays and everything else and the economic reasons. So here, here, and let's hope that uh, he gets listened to. 0818103103. We are looking for your gardening questions, please, because Peter Dowdle will be joining us. You can text her WhatsApp to 0862 
103103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. The annual famine graveyard mass that will take place at Kilpadder Graveyard in Inishannon. It's happening tomorrow evening, Thursday 28th, half past seven. All are welcome. The annual Festival of the Sea that will take place in Castletown Bear this Friday and Saturday. You can see the social media pages for a full list of events. And Ahakista, their festival kicks off 8 o'clock on Friday with the legendary Graeme Norton table quiz. If you haven't got your tickets, forget about it. They sold out, as always, within minutes. Saturday, there'll be a guided walk on the Sheep's Head Way. That's 11 a.m. Children's Treasure Hunt, 2 in the afternoon. Road Bowling on Saturday at 5. Then Sunday, there'll be water events, including common try kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding. Plus a children's family day with a bouncy castle, kids' disco, arts and crafts, all at the Tin Pub Garden. So a busy weekend in Aha Kishta for their festival. And the annu- the Irish Traditional Trades Fair will be held in Ballylongford in North Kerry this Saturday and Sunday, where traditional trades and craftspeople will talk about and demonstrate their work. Trades include longbow makers, coppersmiths, blacksmiths, basket makers, musical instrument makers, and lots more. There will be entertainment for kids, including old-fashioned fairground games, food and crafts, admission 12 euro, Ad, uh, for adults and it's free entry for children under the age of 16. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. When we were talking with uh, Dennis uh, and he was saying, you know, that farmers need to be cut a bit of a break when it comes to these talks about the cut in emissions. And a lot of people agreeing with what uh, Dennis had to say. And Dennis touched on nuclear power, but he also touched on electric vehicles and the batteries and what it takes to make the batteries. Somebody said, has anybody looked into the production of the car batteries for electric cars and the lithium required and disposal of same and the carbon footprint making and disposing of them it is all a great big joke. Now I do know they're improving those uh, EV car batteries uh, certainly but there is yeah there certainly is a question mark over the carbon footprint uh, attached to them. Maybe it'll get better as more of these cars are produced. But you are right, you certainly are right to uh, highlight it. And this made me smile from um, Aidan, one of our listeners in Toker. If somebody's looking for a suggestion of a good summer read, if you're going away on holidays and you're looking for a book, we might do something like that if you are over the next couple of weeks while we're into what is traditionally known as the silly season when all the politicians go away. It is a tendency to be the silly season, even though it hasn't really kicked in. There's been so many issues people have been uh, addressing this year. But a good read, a good book when you're on holidays, there's nothing like it. So I'm interested if anybody comes across a good book that you read, maybe as a holiday reader, maybe just a good book that you're reading at home. Give in your suggestions. It's lovely to pass. I love passing suggestions of books on to somebody else. And that's what Aidan in Toker has contacted us about this morning. He said I, he's re-reading what is a classic book from 1977. And the book is, would you believe, 
the thorn, thorn Birds. He said, I'm reading it for the second time. It is a true classic. I have not read that book, I would say, since it came out in 1977. I remember I was a teenager at the time and I was absolutely hooked on that book to the point of I remember reading it late into the night one Sunday night and I brought the book in my school bag <laughs> to school on the Monday and I was inside in a history lesson and I had the Thornbirds book on my lap with the head down and I read it throughout a history class until I got caught by a nun who told me to book that book away. And did she know what the book was about? It would have been taken from me, I think. It's a great book. That is a great book. Yeah, and actually go back and read books that you haven't read. And uh, one I, I do every now and again, I haven't done it in a few years, when if I get time I will do it again, is to reread some of Maeve Binchy's books there. I always loved, I mean, I was just a, such a fan of Maeve, Maeve Binchy's. And they certainly are books that you could do a reread on for sure. 0818 0818103103 just on Cork Airport Hi Patricia whenever I use Cork Airport they often don't use the air bridges to get you on and off the plane you have to go upstairs and then downstairs and then up more, ste- up more steps to the plane and that's not good for families or older adults you can't blame Cork Airport for that though that's up to the individual airlines there's a charge for the air bridge and Ryanair for example they do everything to cut down on costs so that they can offer you they will say they're doing it to offer you a cheaper product and to give you cheaper flights and they won't pay for the air bridge that's, that's the big problem that's where the so that's not Cork Airport's fault it's, you're, going to, you're going to have to have your argument there with the airline because there are charges involved with that now we spoke earlier about dogs off leads and running up and down beaches or running up and down you know, greenways and in parks and whatever and if people are nervous about dogs that that can cause problems and it was all tied in with responsible pet ownership and all of that well Denise wants to get in on that debate and says on the subject of dogs particularly on beaches some years ago I was out with my husband and we were on a beach here in County Cork a very exuberant large dog was off the lead ran into me from behind literally took the legs out from under me I landed heavily on very hard sand and to be honest I was in shock for about a minute or two now I was in my 50s at the time not exactly a young thing listen in your 50s you're still a young thing anyway wait for this there was no apology from the owners of the dog no one came to check to see that I was okay instead the dog owners were laughing and thought it was the funniest thing ever to see their Fido knock a woman to the ground. I really believe that in the summer months, dogs should not be allowed on any beaches for hygiene reasons, but also so for safety reasons. That's from Denise in West Cork. says, hope you're enjoying the lovely summer. I am, of course, uh, Denise. That's shocking. I'm, I'm more, I don't blame the dog. I mean, the dog was just exuberant and running and thought it was having, you know, didn't mean to knock you off your feet. But I can't believe the reaction from the owners. My God, if that was my dog, I'd be mortified. And if that was that was somebody older or, you know, you could, somebody could have broken a hip or anything. You know, that could have been a serious accident at the end of the day. Shocked. But that we go back to responsible pet owner, owners. They're certainly not responsible pet owners. Just staying on beaches on our beautiful beaches. I, I read with interest that Barcelona is banning smoking on the city's beaches. It's been decreed by the City Council in Barcelona. Smoking now will only be allowed in areas where there are beach bars or restaurants, but you will not be allowed to smoke on the sand or in the sea. 
on the beaches in Barcelona. Beach towns across Europe now are watching Barcelona with great interest to see how their programme goes because if it works well in Barcelona, there is the belief that could lead to a similar ban elsewhere in the EU. The ban is designed to protect the environment and to ensure the right of citizens to enjoy a clean beach, free of smoke, but more importantly, clean of cigarette butts. Any breach of the new rule will result in a €30 euro fine. The City Council in Barcelona said a pilot programme last year reduced the number of smokers on the beach and cigarette butts in the sand. Smokers, they reckon, have left 5 billion cigarette butts at our beaches worldwide every year. Cigarette butts end up in the sea and they take decades to decompose. Barcelona will become the first major city in Spain to ban smoking on beaches. So we'll watch that with great interest because if you speak to any of our wonderful groups that go out cleaning the beach and keeping our coasts uh, clean, they will talk to you about cigarette butts and the plague of cigarette butts. And indeed, if you talk to any of our Tidy Towns groups, they will talk about the scourge of cigarette butts uh, as well. And I was in Ibiza earlier in the summer and they've introduced a ban on smoking in the terraced areas, the outdoor areas in restaurants. Now, it's a bit of a joke because people just get up from their seats and kind of take two, two steps away from where they were sitting and smoke instead. But they're trying to cut down on cigarette smoking uh, as well. And there was the talk that they could introduce it onto beaches as well. So I imagine Ibiza, uh, their council will be looking with great interest at what the outcome in Barcelona. But it seems many other beach towns across Europe are watching very closely this programme in Barcelona. And if it's successful there, you can be guaranteed it will follow on in to other beaches as well. Would people welcome that? Would you like to go to the beach and know that it's a no smoking area and that instead maybe there's a designated area people have to leave the beach and go up onto the roadway where you've got to have receptacles though for the cigarette butts because people unfortunately don't carry around little ashtrays with them in which to bring home their butts uh, with them and then they just dispose of them but it's when they end up in the sea uh, they literally do take decades to decompose. Your thoughts welcomed on what Barcelona is doing banning smoking on their beaches 0818-103-103 John Paul taking your calls text or WhatsApp gardening questions please to 0862-103-103 Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm life and health insurance cmig.ie This is the Court Today replay on C103 uh, Peter Dowd on the IrishGuardian.com joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. Now, we're going to go straight back to last week and the issue with the monkey puzzle tree that was oozing this white sap and it just looks awful from the base and we sent you on the photograph. Yeah, so I had a look at the photograph and it, it, it does look a bit sinister. Like... At this time of year, sap is obviously flowing and sap is rising very quickly. So in a tree like that, if there is any little wound or anything in it, you could kind of expect to see a bit of sap oozing out. And I wouldn't be worried about that. However, like I said last week, when I hadn't seen the photograph that it could be fungal, the black that's mixed in with the sap that you'll see in that photograph does look a bit sinister. It looks fungal. I had a chat with a good friend of mine, tree surgeon Neil Vaughan in Muskery Tree Care, and I showed him the picture. And he's of like mind. He thinks that the black, like something has penetrated the bark and the cambium, some kind of infection. And that's why the the the, the sap is oozing out. But uh, I would say the black isn't a great sign. So I would like the same advice that I gave last week. Um, 
without jumping to any, you know, desperate conclusions, but I, I would certainly get a tree surgeon up to have a look at it. Okay, the advice remains the same. And then Sarah has contacted us by email to Patricia at C103.ie to say our neighbours have built a hot tub on a sloping ground just on the other side of our nine foot garden fence. We can see them clearly and they now have a good view into our garden. Are there some screening trees or shrubs that will fill in a space 12 feet high by 4 foot wide? They, they have to be happy to grow in containers as our side is concreted, preferably not conifers. And we've never had much success with them in containers. OK, OK. And yeah, nobody, nobody really wants to be sitting out in the garden looking at the neighbours in the hot tub. Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, so okay yeah it is a challenge obviously so you're going to have to grow something in containers or in very very large pots or perhaps even building a raised bed on top of the concrete may be an option I don't know obviously um, the advantage of building a raised bed just is, is, is a raised bed to all intents and purposes is the same as a very big pot except uh, it, it doesn't have the same risk of blowing over obviously so anything that's 9 foot tall and more 12 foot tall going up over the nine foot fence and 12 foot in total, um, you know, physics will come to play there. If there's a big heavy crown up on top there that's going to do the screening, it's always possible that it could blow over. That's the first thing. However, leaving that aside, if you have a, a, a robust enough concrete or, or container on the concrete that isn't going to blow over, what do you plant in it? So you, you could plant something that's going to get to 12 feet high like they describe but what I'd be inclined to do now I haven't seen the garden obviously so I'm not sure if this is suitable but what I'd be inclined to do is if you if you can imagine Trish if something's 12 foot high then it's going to be quite wide at the base so you're going to sacrifice a lot of the space down there so perhaps it's an idea to get something if you have a fence that's going up eight or nine feet get some a plant with a clear stem of eight or nine feet so there's no foliage in line with the fence and then the foliage starts at eight foot, if you know what I mean. So like a, a tree with a clear stem of eight or nine feet and then the crown up there. And I would look at something, if you don't want a conifer, I'd look for something like uh, even just the, the, the commoner garden laurel, which is, you know will do exactly what you're looking for and relatively quickly. Um, you could look at Portuguese laurel as another option. Aliagnus is another evergreen one. You do want evergreen, I assume. Um if, if not, if you don't want evergreen, if, if it could be deciduous, you have a whole range of trees you could look at. And then you need to start looking at things like aspect and sunlight and whether it's windy or not. So you need to you need to check all these things in the first instance as to how much sunlight it is or isn't getting, how much wind it is or isn't getting. Uh, and then that will determine your choice. But I would look at something like laurel on a clear stem um, so that all the green is up, up on top, up over the fence and not down low. Uh, uh, or maybe the Eliagnus and they either one of them should do the trick for you Okay and can I say a lot of people invest in those hot tubs and then it's just a, a passing phase they get bored with it and there'll be nobody in the hot tub uh, certainly as we head into the winter months but anyway good luck with it Hi Peter could you please advise me whatever green ground cover shrub to plant to stop dogs relieving themselves outside our house thanking you from Jane what you could look at there is, and it's a very beautiful uh, evergreen or ground cover plant. It's not actually evergreen as such, but I don't think it's a huge issue in this case because it's, it's the ground cover roses. The the, the rose, um, uh, I've drawn a blank, it's a pink carpet. 
pink of sorry rose flower carpet and you get them in pink white or red i do a, I, was, I was having my first senior moment there or first of many <laughs> senior moments um trish so it, it's rose flower carpet and they come in pink is the most resilient of all of them and probably the most showy and they come in whites and yellows as well uh the dogs dogs even humans will struggle to get through them because they're thorny obviously like rose. they're not overly thorny but they're thorny enough i would imagine to stop dogs now they're not evergreen but they do they do have their stems and everything so they're still there during the winter months even though they might lose their leaves but i think i think that would be a good one to to repel dogs okay a couple of questions in on roses the leaves of my roses are being eaten by something not on the edges little holes inside in the leaves that might not be an insect that could be something like shot hole which would you know it's a, it's a fungal uh, infection which would tie in with roses because roses are prone to fungal infections like black spot and mildew and things like this. So the shot hole would just be another one. Um, so in the first instance, what I would do, it is possible, of course, that it's a caterpillar or something, but I think it's more likely shot hole. Um, so in the first instance, I would just remove any infected foliage or affected foliage. Um, just remove it, you know, if it means removing a few stems, that's no big deal this time of the year, don't worry. Um, maybe drench the whole plant with copper sulfate mixed with water and then feed it, feed the roses with a good a good food to, to give them a tonic to kind of make them more resistant to these diseases in the future. I'd imagine that's what it is. So. Imelda says, could you ask Peter for the name of the plant whose leaves look like the nettle plant? He showed the plant at Mallow Garden Festival and I purchased it and I'm happy to say it's flowering. I just don't know the name of it. I'm guessing that the plant she's talking about, which is a fabulous one for butterflies and bees, is Agastache, or the licorice root. Um, I did have that I got that from um, oh Green Man Dave is what I call him he has a nursery down there in West Cork <laughs> Green Man Dave I got it from his his stand in Mallow he had some agastaches uh, and they really are a wonderful wonderful plant Trish uh, I imagine that's what it is because the leaf does look a bit like a small lentil alright agastaches Agastache, yeah, licorice root. Licorice root, okay. Uh, hi, I just planted my cocosmia in my garden and because of the wind, I've tied them with stakes. Is that okay to do? It is. It's absolutely fine to do and you're you're absolutely killing them with kindness. Well, you're not killing them with kindness here, but you're being, I would say, unnecessarily kind because they're, they're tough as old boots. It, crocosmia, Trish, is, is known to you and I as Montbrecia. You know, the orange Montbrecia that you'd have around the the hedgerows of, of the countryside. Now, it's probably a cultivated form is what the, the, the caller has planted, maybe Lucifer or Emily McKenzie or one of these more more cultivated forms. Uh, staking it is absolutely fine. Uh, it'll help it establish, certainly, but even if you didn't stake it and if it did blow over, it would still be okay, don't worry. Hi, uh, Peter. I'm moving house, not very far, just Paula says, just moving next door later this year. I'd like to take my lilac tree with me. It's three or four years old, but only this year it's really began to grow properly. I'm wondering when would it be the best time to move it? The best time to try moving it uh, will be sometime between November, December, January, when the, when the plant is totally dormant. Now, it's only three or four years in the ground, so I suspect... Um, it'll probably move safely enough. However, if it's uh, if it's three or four years, the way that I say three or four years, and it's actually 10 or 11 years, if you know what I mean, um, uh, then then the, the, there's a bigger risk. So there is an inherent risk in moving any established plant, Trish. The longer it's in the ground, the bigger that risk is. So as I say, if it's only two, three or four years, 
your risk is on the much lower end. If it's five five years or more, it's getting higher. So get as much of a root ball out as possible uh, during the winter months when you do lift it straight into its new home. I would cut it back as well, not too hard because when you cut lilacs back, they do tend to, to respond by putting on lots of new green leafy growth, but not so much flowers. So I wouldn't cut it back too hard, maybe just the, the, the growing tips. And a couple of questions in on our C103 Instagram page. Uh, white, uh, white hydrangea, not doing well. Flowers are small and both leaves and flowers have rusty spots on them. What's going on? First thing I'd ask is whether it's a new plant or an established plant. So if it's new, uh, I would say, first instance, water, water, water. Now, I know we're having a bit of rain on and off this week, but it's been very, very dry. And, and obviously, it's been very warm as well. Um, so water, water, water consistently like don't just rely on the couple of deluges that we've had to 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 be enough for the summer you need to be do it consistently if it's a new plant trish if it's an established plant that's not the case um the the brown spots is, is just a type of hydrangea leaf spot again it's a fungal problem like with the rose we were talking about earlier same advice i would give remove uh, as much of the the infected leaves as possible treated with the, the copper sulfate mixed with, with, with water which is a good broad spectrum fungicide um and then feed it, feed it with a good seaweed feed and a good mulch of something around the base of it, even homemade compost, any good organic material, which will also, in fact, help with the, the water loss as well from the root, the root zone. So cut off any infected growth, um, feed it with, the, with the, a liquid seaweed, treat it with the copper sulfate and do pay attention to watering. Kathleen McCroom got a present of an indoor fern. It needs to be repotted. What kind of soil does she need to consider and what about watering? Um, I would say if it needs to be repotted, you want to put it into a kind of a, a good kind of humus rich soil. If That's what ferns like, you know, they, they grow on the woodland floor where there'll be lots of leaf litter and breaking down twigs and things like that. So that kind of that humusy growth is what, what you'd want. I would say any good multi-purpose compost and maybe mix a small bit of, of either humus from your own garden or a bit of chipped bark or something like that. Would, would would be absolutely fine. A good open, as I say, humusy compost. Um, watering with an indoor one, it depends which one it is, really. Uh, if it's like that lovely, fine kind of maidenhair fern, uh, I, I would kind of let it tell me when it needs watering, if you know what I mean. Important that you keep it away from drafts, like windows that are opening and closing, so somewhere where it's more consistent. But then it's a difficult one to answer like you should definitely water it you know once a week or every second day because every single room is different and every single home is different yeah. they're going to dry out quicker and so it kind of i would err on the side of slightly underwatering not overwatering uh and if it's wait for it even to droop a small bit and it'll tell you and then once you get a bit like a bit like a new pet once you get used to it you'll kind of know when it needs a drop of water okay and very finally and very briefly ted and Glen glantan is growing peppers one of them is growing purple. Is this normal? He's never seen purple peppers on sale in any of the supermarkets. Ever seen a purple pepper? I, I'm, I'm racking my brain as you're asking the question, and I don't think I have. But that's not to say that's not to say they don't exist. But I don't. I actually, I think I may have one of the Thai ones. Might be purple, but it's unusual anyway. Certainly, yeah. And let us know what it tastes like, Ted, for sure. Okay, what are you up Absolutely. to this week? A busy week, more more gardening and, and get, you know, I hate to say it, not, but as gardeners, we're always thinking kind of a season or two ahead. So getting ready for the autumn now in the garden, getting the garden ready. OK. All right. Listen, enjoy. And we'll talk to you next week and enjoy the bank holiday weekend. And you. Thanks, Rich. Thanks a million. That is uh, Peter Dowdle, theirishgardener.com. Back with us again next week. Apologies if we didn't get around to all your questions this time of year. It's always so busy when Peter joins me. That's where I've got to leave you for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. 
Mark Malone is in for the afternoon. He's sitting in for Nick, who's enjoying his holidays at the moment. So he'll take you through the after- afternoon until Martina comes in at uh, four. We'll talk with you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And then I'm Patricia Messenger. A very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.